Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing my brother and fellow South Carolinian, Craig Melvin. This has been one of my favorite episodes, I, I, I promise you. It's really good. I, I hope that you like it and please, you know, leave a message and, and retweet or tweet myself and Craig. I mean, we talk about fatherhood, what it means to be a black father. We talk about growing up a son of the South, um, journalism, finding that balance. I mean, it's it's... I'm really proud to call Craig a friend, and I hope this episode does him justice as he comes to talk about his new book. But, you know, before I get to Craig, I've got to talk about our vice president's recent trip to Central America and the slanted reporting that's come out of that trip. You know, in, in case you missed it, our vice president took her first foreign trip this week to Guatemala and Mexico in connection with her assignment from the president of the United States. Uh, to be the face of U.S. policy in the region to address the root causes of migration from Central America to the United States. And instead of talking about the actual trip to Central America, the news uh, from her trip came from a snippet in a Lester Holt interview and her admonition to Guatemalans not to make the dangerous trek to cross the southern U.S. border. Here, here's a clip from Lester Holt's interview. There's one other topic I wanted to uh, talk to you about. But let me just quickly put a button. Okay. Do you have any plans to visit the border? I'm here in Guatemala today at some point, you know, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So this whole this whole this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. And I haven't been to Europe. And I I don't I don't understand the point that you're making. I'm not discounting the importance of the border. Well, I I mentioned it because even I I know Republicans have certainly come at you on this. But Democratic Congressman Cuellar has a border district has said to you and the president, come. You need to to see this. Listen, I care about what's happening at the border. I'm in Guatemala because my focus is dealing with the root causes of migration. I won't replay the speech in Guatemala, but you get the picture. Look, not every answer coming from any elected official will be perfect. This one wasn't good. But what I take issue with is the question of whether the vice president will visit the border, which is cut and pasted from Republican talking points. And literally every press conference this week has been about when she'll visit the border. I don't need to visit the desert to know it's dry. And I can tell you that the former senator from California doesn't need to visit the border because she's been there countless times before as a senator and as attorney general and understands the what's happening there. What is shameful is how journalists recycle Republican talking points that seek to pin the conditions at the border on the vice president when far more attention needs to be given to why she was in Central America in the first place. And that's addressing the U.S. policies that have contributed to the need to leave their countries in the first place and how this administration can fix it so that these issues at the border can be fixed. Soundbite-based reporting that recycles talking points from Republicans shouldn't be what stands in for journalism these days. But, you know, sadly it is. Do better, guys. And that's that on that. Now on to a very special and I think really good interview with my good friend and brother, Craig Melvin. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, 
tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I want to welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast one of my very good friends, somebody I've grown up with literally, uh, like a big brother, uh, Craig Melvin. And it's all also pretty cool that I'm on this side of the microphone asking the questions and he is answering them. So how you doing, Mr. Melvin? I hope all is well. I was I was doing just fine until you mentioned that last little nugget. Uh, <laughs> it almost sounded like a threat. No, uh, it, it's not a threat. It's all love. It is all love, my friend. Before we get started, I just I want you to know how proud I am of you and and what you're doing. Not just with the podcast, but in the uh, in the social justice space, in the criminal justice space. Thank uh, you. Your work has not gone unnoticed. So that means a lot. And thank you for being such a role model, people. We'll get into your early days, but you you have you have done us good, and uh, you are somebody we can all look up to from these small parts of South Carolina. But you know, we start each one of our episodes by having our guest walk us through the arc of their career. And you spent seven years at WIS before moving to DC to doing MSNBC to the Today Show. I'm sure there's a young journalist that's tuning in. Talk us through each of those stops, particularly the work you did at WIS on the other side of the camera as a photographer and producer before you became an anchor? You know, it's, it's funny because I, I started in high school. I was a, uh, a high school reporter. So if I was in high school, that means you were probably in like first grade. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so maybe second. But I, I think there, was a, there was a commercial that ran one afternoon uh, on, on Channel 3. That was WIS on cable back then. And they were looking for high school reporters and you would, you would work with a producer at the, at the station on bull street there. And you would, you would produce these stories for the seven o'clock report on topics related to being a high school student. So like mm-hmm. SAT preparation or, you know, teens in seatbelts, you know, things like that. Uh, this was the station's attempt to try and attract a younger audience. So I convinced my parents to let me go down to Richland fashion mall I hopped in my dad's Pontiac Le Mans, drove to the mall, auditioned. And I guess there, there weren't a lot of kids who auditioned because they picked me. And <laughs> I, I remember walking to the newsroom. I was 16 at the time. And I just fell in love with it immediately. Like the, the, the energy of it, all these people I had grown up watching on television, like they were all like right there in arm's reach. And I just, I just sort of fell in love with it. And then I went off to college and studied government because I thought, well, maybe like you, maybe I could be a lawyer or maybe I could go to Washington and work on the Hill. And, and I realized pretty quickly after a couple months at Walford on the Hill, working for uh, at the time, Senator Fritz Hollings, that wasn't for me. And I remembered that I enjoyed television news and went back to that same station. And the news director at the time hired me to be not a reporter, um, but a photographer. So I shot video. I started in the business by shooting video. I wasn't very good. And then I tried my hand at producing. 
I wasn't very good at that. And people, there are a handful of folks who worked with me back then. I remember those days and people think I'm joking when I say I wasn't very good. And there, there are about five or six people who know they'll say, Oh no. Yeah. You were terrible. Yeah, he wasn't. No, he was, that wasn't his calling. <laughs> Thank God he found how he could figure out he, he could report. Okay. Cause otherwise you have to get a new career. So he did that. And, um, and one day the news director came to me and he said, Hey, I know you're interested in reporting. We're thinking about shuffling our, our morning news. Would you be interested in, in, uh, in starting? I didn't even know what the job was. I just, I knew at that point I was, um, I just moved out of my parents' house. I moved into my grandma's house. Uh, I was paying rent like every third month and the job was going to like pay me more money. And that, at that point I, I just had to eat. And so I took the job and um, he came up with this idea called Craig Cam. And I would, crisscross the Midlands and I would do these wacky morning live shots. And I did that for a year or so. And you've been in the business long enough to know that if people watch anything, it doesn't matter whether it's good, the bosses, that's all they care about. And people watched it and and that turned into uh, reporting. And uh, there was a, there was a fire one morning at, uh, I believe it was Rockaways on Rosewood. Mm, Yeah. And it burned to the ground and I just happened to be around. And I was the first on the scene. And that was kind of the story that I guess maybe helped launch the career. And so I did that in Columbia. And then I started anchoring the evening newscast. And I moved to D.C. And that's that's the abridged version. Um, That's the abridged version. And for those who may not know, Rockaways is where you go get some of the best burgers in Columbia. They throw a little pimento cheese on them or whatever else. Yes. It requires a nap after you finish lunch. How did that How did that early work at WIS establish the foundation for the work that you're doing now? You know, I think, especially when I was doing the morning show, I would have to do six segments, you know, two and a half, three minutes a piece. Because we had to, be, honestly, we just had to fill the time. And there were some mornings, scratch that, but most mornings, we didn't have a whole lot going on in and around Columbia. So you had to get creative. And I developed, I think, early on in my career, as a result, I developed an ability to, to, to speak extemporaneously for extended periods of time about nonsense. It was, that uh, politi- it was that politician, that government coming out of you. Maybe, maybe. Or I think, honestly, it was just necessity. Like, I, I didn't want to get fired. Like, I needed, <laughs> needed the job. And so at 22, I think yeah, I was 22 at the time, at like, you know, 5, 5.30 in the morning, um, I, I was able to, you know, I got a lot of reps in. And to that point, because I, I'm a firm believer in the 10,000 hour rule. I, I have always believed whether it's what we do professionally, whether it's athletics, I think if you do anything long enough, you, you get pretty decent at it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I was able early on in my career, I got a lot of reps. And at the time, I didn't fully appreciate it. I was just, God, man, I'm working so much. I jaws the work. And, and looking back on it, had I not, you know, my early 20s, had I not been able to, to do, you know, 30 minutes of live TV every day uh, and on weekends sometimes, I, I, it wouldn't have turned out like this. No, and, and, and you've, been, you've been very good at it for a very long period of time, that 10,000 hours. Um, it pays off. Talk about the feeling you had as a Black journalist when you were promoted to the Today Show and occupied the chair that was once occupied by Brian Gumble. Uh, for people who may not remember how significant it was for a black man to be the face that millions of Americans see every morning on the Today Show, can you speak to how much of a pioneer 
gumbo has been for black television anchors like yourself? That's, that's who I grew up watching. Like I, I grew up watching and not just enjoying Bryant's style, but just like his approach. And you never, you rarely knew where he stood on something. I mean, he was as objective and unbiased as they came back then. So I, when I, when I would wake up in the morning back then, it was Bryant and Katie. Now, years later, you know, keep in mind, I, I just started at the network and I was invited to this, this dinner honoring Bryant Gumbel. And, and I, I kid you not, first thing I said was, oh, Mr. Gumbel, I grew up, I grew up watching you. I wouldn't be here had I not been able to like, you know, when I was in middle school watching you and blah, I'm going on and on. And he, I, you know, he was, he was very uh, gracious, uh, but he was a bit taken aback at how young I was and, and how much older I guess he'd become. But he was, but, and it wasn't just Brian Gumbel on air. And I've come to, to now work with some folks who worked with him back then. It was the way he approached the craft. Uh, and if you watch real sports now, like that's, that's, that's classic Gumbel. Like he's just, uh, although I would contend as he's gotten older, uh, he's, he's gotten a, a, a little edgier, uh, which I, which I enjoy. Um, but it was just, and you don't fully appreciate the responsibility of being a black journalist. And Bakar, you know this, like, you, you know, you get to points where you kind of look around and you're like, oh, oh I'm, I'm the only one in the room. And, and, For, and I was I was having a conversation with Don Lemon and we would go back and we would say, do you know how many black primetime anchors there were on TV? And there was uh, Lester Holt and Don Lemon and now Joanne Reed. That's it. Um, but that's it. That's but, not. A, <laughs> and that's been in the last like 15 years. That's that's the list. That yeah. is it. You know, I so, got to ask you, until you said that. I, I don't think I realize you're right. And we've got a ways to go. No, but, you know, one of the things that that Bryant brings to the table that you bring is a cultural awareness and a swag. And it doesn't overpower your journalism, but it, it makes it more natural and more and more real. That's high praise coming from you. I, you know, I, I will I will say, I think one of the things that has helped, I didn't learn how to do TV. Like I didn't I didn't study journalism. I took I took two classes at the University of South Carolina one summer in journalism. So I never learned how to play the part on TV. So it's. So when the little light, the little red light would come on every now and then, I would kind of forget that I was, you know, on live TV because it was just kind of like like this, like you're just talking to a friend. I had a, a professor at USC who said that's how you should approach storytelling. It's like you're, you're telling the story either to your brother or your mother or your grandmother, but you pick someone in your family that you know, and that should be your audience, not some John Q six pack stranger out there. That's why you get folks who are like, rrr, 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 and then they, you know, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're like Will Ferrell from the movie. Yeah. You know, uh, before we get to the book, which is one of the reasons you're here, I want to tell you something that I wrote about in my book, which is when I think I truly understood the role of journalism and it made me that much better. It's when you interviewed me when I, in my race for Lieutenant governor. And as we were going, but the last question Craig Melvin asked me was, you got pulled over for a DUI in March of 2012. What do you say to people who say you're not prepared for prime time? I remember that question. And I left that studio and Megan Walker, one of our friends, she, yeah. she texted me. She said, that was a good interview. And it, it, it just made me prepare. It, it helped me understand what it means to be a journalist. Because we're friends. We were friends before. We're friends since. But you, were, you did your job so well and so matter of fact, and it made me step my game up that much more. Whether or not you like the question or not, it made yeah. you step your game up. 
I'm impressed you remembered that. I didn't, I wouldn't, I wasn't going to bring that up. Uh, but <laughs> no, it's, I mean, you know, you know this. I mean, our, our primary responsibility is to hold power and potential power, to hold it accountable. Yeah. Um, and I thought, if I remember correctly, I think you handled the question well. Uh, I would also <laughs> contend things have turned out pretty well for you. <laughs> no, and I think, and I, I point back to that. And, and people ask, how do you get, how do you become better in media? Especially my role as a commentator. It's you, you just have to do it more. And I think that I, I look back at that interview that we did as, as preparing me for, uh, you know, my future that I never knew I was going to have. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Uh, let's talk about your new book, Pops, Learning to Be a Son and a Father. What's it about and why did you write it? So it's about, it's about a couple of different things. It's, um, it's, it's a love letter to fatherhood. It's a love letter to my dad. Um, and a lot of folks don't know about, you know, my father, my mother is, is always out there, but my dad <laughs> is a, a bit more reclusive. And that's primarily because for, for most of my life and most of his life, he was an addict, um, alcohol and, and then gambling and, and for a number of years, both. It's so I got to a point in my life and I think it's because I, I have young children where I said, my dad, obviously, you know, that, you know, you get older and he started to take stock of his life. I was taking stock of, of, of my life as a new parent. And uh, he got in a fender bender and it was because he had gotten blackout drunk again. And we decided we were going to use it as an opportunity to stage an intervention, which we had done before. It had not stuck, but this time it did. So here was a man in his, late 60s, who had been drinking every day for the better part of 40 years, who goes into this facility in Georgia, inpatient, and like that, kicks it. And when he, when he got clean, it changed our relationship. It changed our, our, our dynamic in a dramatic way. And so we became closer, and, and we just we started talking about how remarkable what he had done I started talking about how remarkable what he had done was. And I don't, I don't remember how the idea was born, but we were like, you know what? Someone might be able to get something from this story. My dad doesn't do this. He doesn't do like interviews. Um, you've never seen him on TV. That's not who he is. He's very private. And so it, it took a while. 
And um, finally, late last year, he was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's, you know, and uh, so it's a combination of my relationship with, with my father, how it got to be where it is. It's a story of overcoming adversity. It's a story of overcoming addiction. It's a story of repairing broken relationships with loved ones. And it's also a story about some of the cool dads that I've met along the way as a result of the series that I do for the uh, Today Show called Them It's Got This. So it's, it's a collection of all that. But the first, the first line in the book, I, not to give it away, the publisher reprimanded me. Their, their suggestion was that I shouldn't give away the first line, but I'll give, I'll give it to you. Uh, the first line in, in the book is, you know, my dad was born in a, in a federal prison in West Virginia. And fun fact, it's the same prison that uh, Martha Stewart served her time in and a number of other folks have, uh, 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 have served their time. Billy, Billy Holiday did some time at this prison in, in West Virginia as well. But how that shapes you, how that shapes your worldview, you don't fully appreciate it when you're younger. And, and so the story takes a look at, at that and how it, how it affected my father. And you talk about your father and what he had to do, the accident and the and the going to, to rehab. But how did you ultimately come to peace with your relationship with your father? Because that had to take some work on your part as well. Oh, yeah. No, it started with therapy. I mean, I, you know, I'm a firm believer. have been for a long time. Once, at, once every two weeks, Dr. Garcia, what's happening? I'm, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Once every two weeks, pretty good. That means you're, yeah. you're, you're almost there. Um, Got to no. find this balance out here. So it's, it, it, it started years ago. In fact, when I lived in Columbia, I guess I could make the argument it sort of started there when I started seeing a therapist there. And she helped me realize that a lot of the things that I, would, I was, a lot of the things I thought I was dealing with wasn't really actually what was, what was going on. It was unresolved issues that I had never addressed uh, or even acknowledged in some cases. And, and the greatest of which was, was my dad. I, I spent so many years between 15 and maybe 28 or early thirties, just angry, just angry at him. I didn't understand why he couldn't like overcome this addiction. I, I just, I was, I was ashamed of him. I was just, I mean, it was all these emotions that I, 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 I grappled with, but didn't fully understand. And part of what happened because was when I, when I really became a journalist and I started talking to other people and going to different places and doing stories about addiction, whether it's substance abuse or substance abuse disorder, alcoholism, I started to view addiction for what it is and what it was then as well. Which is an, it's an illness. It's a sickness. It's a, it's a disease. But back then it was like, oh, he's weak. Yeah. He's not trying hard enough. He's lazy. And, and so that anger eventually became regret that I felt bad because I had written him off. So it just... So, so finally, when we got him in the rehab, it just, it, it opened, it opened the door, you know, it, it really did. Like you, you know, your father, you and your dad have always had a solid relationship and you know, your dad is, folks who listen to the podcast probably know, like Dr. Cleveland Sellers is civil rights royalty. And so it was frustrating for me as, as a young man, I wanted my dad, I write in the book about this romantic idea that I had a fatherhood that had been shaped largely by the Cosby show. Uh, <laughs> I wanted I wanted a Dr. Huxtable, and for for much of my my youth, I had like Homer Simpson, and and it bothered me. It bothered me. Let me ask you this question because my relationship, the the relationship that I have that's that I'm working on that's been fractured is the one with my mother. 
because she suffers from a rapid cycle bipolar disorder. And I talk about in my book how you don't know what you're going to get. It's like you can either have a box of chocolates or or a bed of snakes. Like you just don't know what, depending on the day. And I struggled with, and finally, I was just kind of like, screw it. I'm, you know, I, this is my life. But did you ever struggle with making this public? Because now everybody's going to see all of you, warts and all. Yeah. No, I struggled mightily with it. I'm, I've always been a, a fairly private person. And I think that's because I see on a regular basis what happens when people put themselves out there. Uh, we love to judge. It's what we do. Love to judge and, and, and categorize and put people in boxes and put labels. And on. cancel and cancel. Now oh, that's, yeah. the new thing. Oh, that's the, that's the new favorite. That's uh, in vogue. Yes. yes. We, we do like to cancel. Yeah. We like, but ultimately I, I, I decided, and I firmly believe this, that when people tell their stories, or as, as the kids like to say now, when people speak their truth, others benefit from it. Someone, I, someone is going to read this book, and they are going to try and repair that fractured relationship, or that estranged sibling, or child, uh, or parent. They are, they are going to read this and hopefully take it as a sign from above uh, that it's, it's never too late. It's never too late. But no, I, I struggle mightily with it. And there, and, and there will be people who read this and say, wow, that I, I, did, I did not know that. I, that's a bit much. That, that's a it lot. It is. I mean, there's, a, there's a point in the book I write about, you know, 14. At the, I'm going to tell you all the stories. Nobody's going to want to read the book. But anyway. No, I, no. And don't have Emma cutting the interview off. So just go ahead. Do it, go ahead and share. It's, um, I was 14. And it was, it was summertime and, and there was a young lady that lived around the corner and I made a series of bad decisions. Uh, and I almost became a teenage father. And I, I was, I didn't have this, I didn't have a relationship with my dad. I couldn't go to him. I was deathly afraid of my mother. So I'm, I spent weeks like, like that close to, to, to jumping off Gervais Street Bridge. Like it was, it was dicey. And I finally mm-hmm. talked to my aunt who was like, Hey, the clock is working against you. Like you, you've got to do something, say something. And ultimately I did, but there's stuff like that in the book that, you know, um, people who know me well don't know that. And it's, but I, I realized Bakari about 15, 20 pages in, like if someone reads it, great. I wrote the book for myself, for my dad and my kids you know, it's, it, it was cheaper than therapy during a pandemic. Like it, it was, it was the most cathartic thing I've ever done. Now, granted, I would come down to this basement some days and I'd have to, cause that part, big part of the book is me interviewing my dad. And you know, you ask, you ask your parents some questions. Oh, you and, and, and you're like, Oh, maybe I should have, I should have asked that. that one. And like 10 minutes in, you're like, no pops, I don't need, I don't need all of that. Uh, you could, you know, it's that's so it was it was great. Plus, you know, I know a lot of men who've had difficult relationships with their fathers uh, and they make conscious efforts not to repeat the mistakes of their father. But there's not always a natural playbook to pull from when navigating tough spots that we all encounter as fathers, husbands and sons. Who were the men or women, because you talked about going to your aunt, that provided that playbook and stepped in the gaps for you? And how are you paying that forward with the next generation of fathers that you encounter? That list is long um, in, in terms of folks who filled in to, um, to, 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 to fill that void. Um, I had and I, a slew of uncles who played the part at different times in, in my life. 
my uncle James, I write about him in the book. Um, my father's oldest brother, he was a civil servant, uh, did very well for himself, lived in Washington. And um, every time he would come home, he had a Cadillac. And, you know, you grew up black in South Carolina. Like that, that's the very definition of success. I was like, wow, Unc's got a new caddy. This, well, I had no idea what he did, but whatever he was doing, he was doing it well. He doing it uh, well. That's right. You know, and he always encouraged me to, uh, to, to do well in school. And, and uh, we had a contract where, whereby he would pay me for A's and B's when I was in, in, in middle school and high school. He filled in the void. My younger, my mom's younger brother, Uncle Pop, played some basketball in college and uh, went to C.A. Johnson there and, and called mm. me. He filled in the void a number of times. Then I had just mentors along the way. I had professional mentors who really, I mean, there were a couple, you know, there were a couple ex-girlfriends, fathers who ended up playing the role from time to time. But beyond all of the, the aforementioned men, it was my mom. You know, my yeah. mom... Uh, was playing, she was mom and dad for the better part of my childhood. Um, I mean, just not just uh, emotionally and, and, and mentally, but financially for a while. You know, my, my, my dad's gambling addiction was at, a, at, at its worst. My mom, who's a, a school teacher at the time, she went out and picked up a second job to make ends meet mm. and, and didn't complain about it. And I didn't even find out until actually I was working on the book um, how bad of a shape we were in. And, and how hard it was for her. And here was a woman who, she was, you know, first in our family to go to college, first in our family to get a graduate degree. She grew up in the projects, Gonzalez Gardens, and got evicted and moved into some, some new projects. And, and I think got evicted again, but grew up hard, was the oldest of four, grew up in a house where her dad was in and out and abusive. And so she had to help rear her three younger siblings. So she does that. She goes to college, she works, her, works to put herself through college, gets pregnant with me, like right after. I was born in 79. My parents were married in 82. And, and there's a great story in the book about me being at the wedding. And I've seen these pictures of me at a wedding. And I'm asking my father about this wedding reception. And my dad's like, what wedding reception? I was like, the pictures that I've seen of me at a wedding reception. He's like, that, that wasn't a wedding reception. I was like, oh, and I'll, I'm not going to finish the story. The rest is in the book. Yeah, I was like, don't finish the story. I, no, I do want to know that. Finish I... <laughs> the story. But again, it's one of those things where you ask the question and, and you, you're not always prepared for the answer. I broke one of my cardinal, cardinal rules of interviewing. You don't typically ask questions that you if don't you don't know, know the answer to. And I'm like, oh, it's that. You can ask that. And there are a couple of times where I was like, I should be more of a journalist. <laughs> and that's of a sign. Um, but no, I, and, and, to, and to your point about trying to pay it forward, one of the things, and it's really become a highlight of, of the job at the show, is showcasing modern fatherhood, um, trying to, to show our audience on the Today Show, trying to show a picture of fatherhood that doesn't always get shown, um, especially when it comes to, to dads that look like me and you. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm trying to use the platform to do more of that. And I, I'll be honest with you. I've been pleasantly surprised by the response. And I think that's because it's just not done. Like it's. Yeah, great, no, I mean, yeah. like I was I was doing an interview about Barack Obama's primetime sit down with Anderson Cooper. And he talked about fatherhood. And I was like, I mean, this is important because black fatherhood is looked at it somewhat like a unicorn. Like, right. you know, like it's like, oh, my God, you guys right. have dads. Like, right. I'm like, 
Yes, we're here. And, and the wife lives in the house with you. Oh, my goodness. What is yeah. going <laughs> Like, look at that, sweetheart. Come look at the glass. No, anyway, like one more question before I let you go, because I know you're extremely busy. Talk about how important your relationship was with your brothers and perhaps offsetting some of the gaps created by your father. You know, it's a uh, my younger brother, Ryan, six and a half years younger. Uh, he's my best friend and, and is the strongest person that I know. And it's funny because when you're when 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 there's such an age gap, you don't really have anything in common for the first maybe 12, 13 years of of their life. Correct. And and, um, and that was the case for us. Like I had no use for him until probably he hit high school. And I was like, oh, wow, he has ideas. Uh, and he's a little he's a little human. Look at, Look that. at him with a, a brain and everything. And so I started to see him differently. And then, um, you know, he, there was a, a, a dark moment in, in his life that brought us closer, uh, extremely close. And I write about it in the book, dark moment in all of our lives. But I, I think in many ways, because of our father's absenteeism and, and because of his addiction issues, I had to step in and play the role of, of dad for him for a number of years, especially when he was in, in college and in the years, the, the years after college, when he was in his early 20s, um, my older brother, who, who as you know, uh, passed away back in December, we grew up in, in separate households, but, um, but very much grew up together. And he was always someone that I, I, I didn't just admire, but idolized because he was, yeah. even at a young age, he was a man of, of conviction and faith. Never cussed, never drank, never smoked. Uh, lived uh, pretty much the antithesis of the life that I was living uh, in, in my my twenties and thirties, and and I so I sort of held him up, put him on this pedestal. Um, he was an entrepreneur at an early age, and just you know played college football, and 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 so I I he in some ways sort of played that role for me when our dad was 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 struggling uh, mightily, and so when we. You know, when we lost him in um, in December to colon cancer, it was just it was a it was a punch in the gut. It's yeah. like you you think, you know, you have an older sibling uh, or siblings in general. The idea is, you know, you you grow old together. You're playing golf together. You're sitting around drinking, smoking cigars. We're, we're invincible, right? We're yes. invincible. There's no more no mortality, no sense of mortality. No, and we know unfortunately that is not true. Yeah. Well, my, you, you, your family is still in my prayers. I will tell you that this has been one of the more rewarding interviews that I've had on this show, and I hope that people have taken as much from this as I have. Um, well, I but, know you're lying because I've listened to your podcast, and you've got no, you, I, you've had some great guests. I didn't say it was the most impressive guest. I just meant the conversation was good. I've got much better guests, Craig. No, but before you go. Tell people when the book's available, where they can get it, how they can read it, all those good things. Uh, the book is, it's, so it's called Pops. It's available on June 15th. Um, you could order it on Amazon, Target, Books A Million, Walmart. You can uh, go into a bookstore and, and get it as well. The audio version, I read the audio version uh, myself. You can order that. 
but it's it's June 15th. And there's something in the book for everyone, including a, a slew of pictures that my mother picked out herself. She's very proud of them. <laughs> I'm glad you were able to get pictures in the book. I picked out pictures and then my editor was like, oh, we forgot to tell you we took all the pictures out. So <laughs> <laughs> pictures are expensive, apparently. <laughs> yeah, they are. Thank you so much, Craig Melvin, host of the Today Show, for coming to join the Bakari Sellers podcast. I am so happy to be your friend, your little brother, all those things. I appreciate you so very much. I'm proud of you, man. I really am. And I'm, I'm proud of the father you've become. Well, thank you. That, that's my number one task and job. So God bless you. Have fun. You as well, my friend. Be well, okay? Bye-bye. Before I let you go, this pains me, but I got to congratulate the Tennessee Titans on winning the AFC South. Yeah, they won it already by signing Julio Jones away from the Falcons. The Falcons did what the Falcons do. They blew a 28-3 lead, and they basically let Julio Jones go for the equivalent of a honey bun. Not even a iced honey bun, just a honey bun. And what the Titans now have is arguably the most impressive set of physical specimens in the NFL with uh, Derrick Henry in the backfield and Jones and A.J. Brown on the outside. Prayers up for the AFC South and my brothers out there on the Titans schedule. I see you, Stefan Gilmore, that have to actually tackle these boys. And that's that on that. We'll see you on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend.